Good morning. Today we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 40, verse 16 through 38. If you want to see it in the Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 80. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to find it, but not too long. All right, let's get into it. Then Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases, and set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to come in or enter the tent of meeting, because a cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. We have come to the final sermon in Exodus. From slavery to glory. Forty chapters, thirty-some sermons We have said that this is not only the story of Israel, that this is our story as well. Uh, This has been the incredible journey of the people of Israel. Just to recap, remember thousands of years earlier, God made promises to a man named Abraham and to his descendants. He said, if you will go, I will make your descendants into a great nation who would dwell in a rich land, a land of promise. And Abraham did go, he did obey, and 400 years later, Abraham's descendants are now living as foreigners in Egypt, eventually being enslaved by Pharaoh. And the people of 
Israel, the Hebrews endured horrific sufferings in their slavery, unimaginable abuse and working conditions and bitter sorrow and genocide. Pharaoh kills all of their baby boys, and yet this couple defies Pharaoh. And they keep this one little baby alive and they put him in the Nile River and, and this little baby grows up. His name is Moses. And, he, and even though he commits horrible acts as an adult and he flees into the wilderness in shame, God brings him back and says, no, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of slavery. And through Moses, God performs signs and wonders and plagues on the Egyptians and Pharaoh's heart continues to harden. He won't give in. He won't let him go. And finally, the final plague, the 10th plague, the Hebrews are instructed by God to put on their doorpost the blood of a spotless, innocent lamb. It was the Passover lamb. The Passover was instituted, and the angel of death would go throughout the land, and for the houses, without the blood covering the doorpost, the firstborn was killed, including Pharaoh's. And Pharaoh finally lets the people go, but not before changing his mind and chasing after them. And, and so God parts the Red Sea and he rescues his people yet again and the Egyptian army is destroyed. And so here's God's people journeying in the wilderness and, and after seeing all that God has done, you would think they would trust him, they would have confidence in him, and yet all along the way they're grumbling. They're doubting. And yet God continues to provide for them physically and spiritually. And then he calls God, Moses up the mountain, Mount, Mount Sinai, into the cloud and into the fire. And he gives them the law, the terms of this covenant, this commitment God was making with his people, including the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is up there, the people down below get impatient and they begin to, to build a golden calf and worship a golden calf. Moses has to come back down. He goes back up, recommits themselves. God punishes and yet offers grace. He does not destroy them. And then this most interesting thing in the book of Exodus, 25% of the book, 10 chapters out of 40 are devoted to these detailed instructions and the building of a tabernacle, a structure. We have to ask why in this freeing his people from slavery, why so much time devoted to the tabernacle? And here's why. Because this would be God's dwelling place among his people. This is where the Exodus story lands. With the tabernacle being erected. You, know, you hear that? That's what this story ends. This is the pinnacle. Unless you understand the significance of the tabernacle, you can't understand Exodus. Exodus starts with the people in slavery, but it doesn't just end with them in freedom. God doesn't say, I set you free, now go live. No. It starts in slavery, but he rescues them, and it ends with God's presence coming down among them. That's the point. It ends with them worshiping God who lives among them because that's been the goal the entire time, God living among his people. So today's message is the glory of God is God with us. I want to start by asking you a question. What do you want from God? What do you want from God today? You ever think about how you would answer that question? What do you want from God?
Unfortunately, most of us answer this question in unhealthy ways. Here's several ways we tend to answer that question. What do I want from God? Well, I want life from God. Life from God. In other words, some of us want God's blessings and God's gifts, but we don't really want God himself. We want what God can give us. And so this leads to worshiping things from God rather than the giver God himself. We want life from God. Others of us want life apart from God. Right? This is an attempt to do life apart from the God who may or may not be there, right? We think most of life depends on us, that if I, with enough hard work and enough of my trying to control my little world, my little kingdom, then we can create the life that we've always wanted for ourselves. Life apart from God. Some of us want life under God. In other words, we, there's this way of relating to God by just rules. If we obey, God will bless if we disobey, God will punish. And so this leads to this obsessive focus on sin or behaviors. Sometimes our own sin, but most of the time other people's sin, right? To make us feel better. Life under God. I obey, God should bless. Do you resonate with any of these ways of how you relate to God? What do you really want from God? Do you want something from Him? Do you want something instead of Him? Are you here to do your part so God will do His part? Is that how you understand a relationship with God today? This week I was rereading a sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. It's incredible. There's a lot there. So I was just chewing on it again. And, and I was struck by how it connected to what what we're preaching today. Here's what he says. In it, he says, look, what we think of God is important. But then he says this, quote, but how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Let's look at the question, not what do you want from God, but let's look at how this text answers the question, what does God want from you? What does God want from us? What is he doing? What, what, what is he up to? What does he really want? Let's look at this text. Lesson number one from Exodus 40. The glory of God is that he wants to live with us. Exodus 40 is the pinnacle of Exodus. Not freedom from slavery, not parting the Red Sea, not the giving of the law. It's the, the, the making, the erecting of the tabernacle built exactly the way God instructed Moses and the people. This is the pinnacle. Verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And then if you continue reading, it, it starts with the innermost chamber, right? The most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. And in that Ark, in that um, chest, of, you know, like a chest, they would put only the Ten Commandments. And on top of that chest was called the mercy seat. And that's where the presence of God would come down. That's where God would dwell among his people. And then if you notice as you're reading, then it works outward. Then they, then they do the, 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 not just the most holy place, but now the holy place, the whole tent structure. And then it goes outward from there to the outer courts. And then in verse 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. 
why are we even talking about a tent at all? Why is this the pinnacle? Why is this so important? Here's what God has been saying over and over in Exodus. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary or a home that I may dwell in their midst. And then Exodus 29. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell among them. That's been his purpose all along. That's been his goal all along. That's been his mission all along. Do you see what God's saying? His primary goal in giving the law, rescuing them, making a covenant, wasn't so that he could give them nice things, wasn't so that he could take them to the promised land, wasn't so that they could manage God, it wasn't simply so they could obey in order to be blessed. No, his primary purpose in all of this was so that he might live among them. That's the point of the tabernacle. And that's the point of the whole Bible. In fact, the tabernacle has so many parallels with the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2 and 3, God creates the garden and he lives with Adam and Eve, right? That they had his presence fully, no strings attached, no barriers. They had all of his glory living among them and everything was perfect. Everything was, was in harmony. Their relationship with each other was perfect. Their relationship with nature was healthy. No sin, no death, no hiding, no fear, no shame, right? That's why the, the phrase, they were, they were both naked and unashamed. It really is the, the perfect picture. There, there is no need for hiding or shame because God's glory was among them. Just perfect love and beauty and joy. It was stunning. It was heaven on earth. They could have everything they wanted. And now the tabernacle was meant to be this new picture of heaven on earth. God's presence living among his people again, his glory and his beauty, right? Beauty is important. That's why there's all kinds of beautiful tapestry and design in the midst of the tabernacle. It's meant to communicate my glory is meant to shine my beauty among my people. Now, here's what's so interesting about Exodus 40. It says in the end of 33, and Moses finished the work, right? But then notice verse 34, how quickly God's presence comes down and fills the tabernacle. The end of 33, Moses finishes the work, and immediately it says, and then the cloud covered the tent. But here's what's interesting about verse 34. It says, then the cloud covered, but in the Hebrew, there is no then, Here's how it reads in the Hebrew. Moses finished the work, the cloud covered the tent, and the glory filled the tabernacle. Like immediately, like right away. Why am I pointing that out? Because I think this signifies how eager God was to come down and live among his people. He had been waiting. He had been anticipating. He had been, he had been asking and calling and commanding them to do it exactly the way he asked them to do it. And, he, and, he, and as soon as they're done, boom, he's there. He could have waited a few days. He could have been like, yeah, I'm waiting for a home. I need a home inspection, right? Maybe I got to lower my closing costs. No, he doesn't wait. 
Right, right away. It's like he can't wait to fulfill his promise to be among them. God is eager to come down and live among them. God is eager. Write that down. He's not impatient. He's not anxious. He's not like us in that, but he is eager. Is that how you view God? That he is eager to be with you? To live with you? That he longs to enjoy intimate fellowship with you? So many of us have such a, a, a warped, such a different view of God. So we think of God as being generally annoyed at us. Maybe that he actively even avoids us. Look at the ways you keep blessing Brady over here, but, but here I am kind of languishing. It's annoying. That's just an example, just a joke. <laughs> like, like we have this view that we're a drag on God. No, the God of the Bible has always been eager, eager to draw near, eager to be with you, eager to show you his glory and his grace. This is the heart of God on display here in the Old Testament. God rescues his people from slavery and death so they can enjoy his presence and experience his glory. This is the glory of God, that he gives himself to us to live among us. Do you believe that? Do you understand? That is his glory. Not being up on a mountain so that only Moses can go up. That's not the kind of glory he wanted. That's not his end goal. That's right. He wanted to show me he's holy. But the end goal is right here, right among you for all to see and all to enjoy. God is eager. The glory of God is that he wants to live with us. But point number two the glory of God is also the barrier to God living with us. There's an irony to this. Moses has the tabernacle built exactly the way God commanded him. He builds the Holy of Holies, Ark of the Covenant, which is the only furniture in that room, and that's where the glory would come down. And then verse 22, outside the room was the holy place, right? The, the outer section of the tent itself which had the bread and the lampstand and the golden altar and the incense. And then outside the tent structure was the courtyard, and that's where the altar for the burnt offerings would be. You wouldn't go into the tent without offering a burnt offering. You had to offer burnt offering for sin every day. But notice, as Regina was reading, how many times it said veil or screen. Verse 21 he set up the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen. And he screened the Ark of the testi Testimony. Verse 22 at the end, on the side of the tabernacle, outside the veil. Verse 26, and he put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. Verse 28, and he put in place the screen for the door. Do you see it? Veil after veil, barrier after barrier, and you have to wash, then sacrifice before even entering in the tent. And then even then, it's only the high priest once a year who could enter the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. Do you see what God is communicating in the, in this, in the design itself? God commands there to be barriers set up in order to access his glorious presence. 
even with God's eagerness to come down in all of his glory to fill the tabernacle, even with his desire to dwell among them. And then it says in verse 35, here he comes, he's eager, he's down, the glory's filling the tabernacle, they see this cloud, and then what does Moses do? Moses is like, oh great, I've been with God before in all of his glory, I'm gonna go on in. Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The way, I mean, it's a genius how it's written in Hebrew. It's meant to read like he was kind of surprised. Like, what's happening here? I'm like your man, God, right? We are friends. It said Moses spoke to God like his friend. But when his glory comes down, God says, no, no. No, you don't stroll in here like you're something, okay? You don't come in whenever you want. It says he's unable to enter. Something is blocking the way. And we find, ironically, that the very thing that blocks the way is the glory of God. Blocking God and blocking Moses from entering. Here's what it's communicating. God is sovereignly in charge of his own front door. He decides who can enter his presence. And he decides the conditions required to enter his presence. There are conditions. Well, maybe, maybe you don't care for a God that sets up barriers. Maybe you want a God that will accept people no matter what. No conditions. I want a God who's all loving. I don't like this idea of conditions. I want a God who will accept me. Really? Is that the kind of God you want? A God who doesn't care about your heart at all? A God who doesn't care about your mindsets at all? A God who doesn't care about your desires at all? Remember last week, the God of the Bible is a God, who, a God who commands our obedience. But it's actually because he loves us that he commands us. Do you really want a parent who requires nothing of their children? Is that like, that's good parenting. Yeah, let them do whatever they want. Look how much he loves them. He does whatever he wants. No, that's not love. That's not freedom. It may be abuse. Deep down, we all long to be welcomed into the presence of God. In that same sermon of C.S. Lewis's, The Weight of Glory, he says later in the sermon, quote, listen, listen carefully. He says, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside It's no mere neurotic fancy. It is the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also of the healing of that old ache. We all long for this to be on the inside of that door. We know that the greatest honor and glory would would have barriers come down, full access to God, but we can't just stroll into his presence without conditions. Why? Because God, as he's revealed himself to the Israelites, is holy. That's what the law was meant to reveal. I am holy, I am perfect, I am pure, and if you want to live in, in accordance with my law, that's how you can live in covenant with me. But they can't. They can't do it. And at the first sign of trouble in the wilderness, they grumble. 
And when Moses is delayed up on the Mount Sinai, they build a golden calf and there are dire consequences for their sin. Don't you see? We have an eager God, a God who wants to live with us, but there's this barrier because of our sin, because of our lack. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. As soon, right, they had heaven on earth, God's glorious presence. As soon as they decide they want to be in charge instead of God. As soon as that happens, they're kicked out of the garden and an angel, it says a cherub, is placed there with a, a burning sword stationed as a barrier to the garden. No more unfettered access to God's presence. God knows that if his glory came down without a barrier in the tabernacle, the people would be destroyed. His glory would consume them. And that's why over and over in, God, in Exodus and in the Bible, God's holiness is pictured as a fire. By nature, a fire consumes anything that comes in contact with it. And so that's the predicament we're in. That's the predicament the Israelites were in. God deeply longs to be with them, to live with them. He is incredibly relational, and yet we constantly choose to worship things other than God. A golden calf, being liked by others, financial security, physical beauty, career success. You know your golden calf best. And so there are these barriers, veils and screens, more over and over. And God is in charge of inviting people into his tabernacle, into his presence. And he does it in his time and in his way. Now listen, it doesn't take long. Right? It doesn't take long. You read the end of Exodus and the way the Pentateuch, the way the first five books of the Bible are meant to be read is as soon as the end of Exodus, now chapter 3, Leviticus 1.1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent saying, speak this to the people of Israel. When you bring an offering, come to the Lord. In other words, it doesn't take long for God to invite the people into his presence, but it's going to take the entire book of Leviticus to spell out what are the conditions, how do we do that? And specifically, God's saying, there's going to be a mediator, meaning you need someone standing in your place, which is a priest, and you're going to have to come with a sacrifice. You're going to have to take an innocent animal and the guilt of your sin is going to be applied or uh, uh, put upon that animal and that animal will be your substitute. And that's how you're going to enter my presence. The death of an animal is God's gracious substitute for the death of his people for their sin. And I know that sounds heavy. But at least it means there's hope. At least there's hope that even with these barriers, God has made a way for broken people, sinful people, to live in intimate fellowship with him. There are barriers. And it's the glory of God that is the ultimate barrier. Do you understand how serious your sin is? God doesn't want us to be crushed under our sin, but he also doesn't want us to wink at sin and go, eh, no big deal. No, it is. Every time they sacrificed an animal for the Israelites, their sin was, was, was brought home to bear. My sin leads to death. And this is the tension. God being eager to live in sweet intimacy with us because that's his glory. And yet that same glory is a barrier to us enjoying that sweet intimacy with him. How does God resolve this tension? What does he offer us today? 
Lesson number three. The glory of God is that he lives with us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the fullest glory of God on display. Notice it says in verse 36 that through all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. In other words, the presence of God, the cloud, he would actually be their guide throughout all their journeys into, in, in the wilderness leading up to the promised land. His presence would lead them every step of the way. Then verse 20, uh, 38 the cloud of the Lord, it did not come and go. It stayed. Once his presence came down, it stayed. It was a constant reality for the Lord's people. In other words, God was faithfully living among them. He would not leave them nor forsake them. And so you get a glimpse of God's desire to live with his people permanently. You get a glimpse. I'm going to lead you every step of the way. I'm going to come down and I'm going to be faithful. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be there right there all the time. And yet it's not permanent. It's a tent. And later after the tabernacle, they build him a temple. But both are eventually destroyed. And so you get the sense of the tabernacle. This can't be the final answer. This must be a sign of something better. They had to know that deep down, that while the blood of bulls and goats could atone for their sin, meaning it could cover their sin, but then they had to do it again every week, every day, and then every year, while it could atone for their sin, it couldn't take away their sin. God must have something better in store, and he did. And so we get to the New Testament, and we get the Gospel of John, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Right? The Word was with God and the Word was God. That's Jesus. He's the Word. And then it says, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His what? His glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Exodus language. The word for dwelt is the word tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. He lived among us. The glory of God came down among us. John is revealing, one, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the God of Exodus. He is Yahweh. And that's a wild claim. But Jesus himself claims to be the temple of God, the very dwelling place of God, his glory, the glory of God. Matthew 26, 61, when Jesus on trial, someone accuses him saying, oh, he said he would destroy the temple and in three days I will rebuild it up. Why is Jesus even bringing up the temple? What is he saying? He's trying to tell the people and he's trying to communicate to us, I am the tabernacle of God. I am the full, true, final temple of God. I am the glory of God on display. You see, if he's the temple, if he's the tabernacle, that means he's the priest. Right? He's the one who goes in as the mediator. That also means he's the altar. And he's the bread. And he's the light. And he's the sacrifice on the altar. Jesus is everything. And that means Jesus is the key to breaking through the barrier into God's presence. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus went to the cross. All four gospel writers explain that when Jesus was on the cross, something monumental happened. 
And they do this by telling us that when he died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. What did Exodus 40 verse 33 say? And Moses finished the work. He was the tabernacle. Jesus finished the work. The glory of God came down and he finished it. When Jesus died on the cross, he he truly and fully finished the work. He was the tabernacle. He was the place where God wants to meet with us. Well, when he went in as the high priest, when he went in giving, offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Passover lamb, he had to die just like those animals had to die because sin requires death. And Jesus went in as the once and for all sacrifice who died for us. But then the gospel writers also tell us that as soon as Jesus died, the moment Jesus died, the moment he finished his work of dying for sin, becoming our substitute, becoming the mediator for us, it says the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was torn, not from bottom to top as if someone could do it, but from top to bottom as if God was saying from above, I'm going to tear this thing apart. I'm tearing down the barrier. Why? Because God is showing us, I am eager to live with you. I have set up my own barriers and conditions that, present my, that prevent my glory from destroying you. But now, I have, Jesus was destroyed because of your sin. And instead of you being destroyed, Jesus took it all. He took all of our guilt. He took all of our shame. And in doing so, Jesus tears down that barrier between God and man. And now we have full access to God. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, notice confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is how a holy God can live with unholy people. By trusting in the redeeming blood of Jesus. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean we work hard to earn God's approval. It does, it's not life from God. It's not life under God. It's not life over God. Here's what God wants. Here's what God has wanted all along. Here's what it is. Life with God. Life with us. I asked earlier, what does God want? And here's the simplest answer. He wants us. He wants you. Do you see what that means? If you will admit your sin, admit your golden calves, admit the struggles of your heart that you want to be in charge of your life and there's this constant pull. If you admit that and then turn to Jesus in faith that you trust he is the Passover lamb, he died in your place and he rose again, then look, he is your life. You don't have to work to earn his love or to keep his love. You already have it. And you can have this intimate relationship with the God who created you And he founded that relationship on grace, not performance. His glory is still burning on earth. Did you know that? You say, no, Jesus was taken up. The glory of God is taken up. No, his glory is still burning. You know where? In us. In us. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple of God. His presence and power lives within you, within us, through our union with Christ. 
and together we are his tabernacle. Peter says this, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. That means two things as we wrap up here. That means our community should be a place of hope and beauty. If we are his tabernacle, if the glory of God is is his presence with us, what does it look like? It looks like hope and beauty. At the very least, it looks like these two things. It looks like hope and beauty. Hope that God is not finished with us yet. Do you hear me, Christian? He will finish what he started. In you, in in his church, don't quit on yourself. And don't quit on his church. Because God will never quit on you. He'll never quit on his church. It's hope. God is at work. He will complete what he started. And it's also beauty. It's beauty in that our relationships overcome cultural and political barriers and age barriers. Right? The way we love one another, the way we share our resources with one another, this is meant to reflect the beauty of God. We don't, need, we don't need beautiful tapestry to show us how beautiful God is. How do we show the beauty of God? It's how we live together as a community of faith. Look, I get it. The journey is hard. Sometimes it feels overwhelming, doesn't it? God with us doesn't mean life gets easier. I love this scene at the end of one of the Lord of the Rings movies. It's right in the middle of the books. I know, I know, Lord of the Rings, I know. (laughs) Sam and Frodo are tired. They've been journeying a long time. They've been running. They've been battling evil forces. They're now isolated from their friends. They're wounded and they reach this really low point in the journey. And then there's this, this interaction between Frodo and Sam. And, and here's what Frodo says. He says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam replies, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I now know. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo asked him, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. What are we holding on to, church? It's God with us. Now and forevermore. 
That's what we're holding on to, that our future reality is that one day Jesus will return and restore all that's been lost and make all things new. Our future is truly heaven on earth. And we know how the story ends. Revelation 21, and I'm closing with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We are bound for glory. The glory of God is God with us. So church, keep fighting to believe this, rest in this, and proclaim this good news. Let's pray. Father, as we respond to you, to your initiation, to your eagerness, that you would come down at the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in Jesus, and now by your Spirit living among us individually and us as building stones in the the church, the people of God. We thank you that we can be be a, a display of your glory. Keep infusing our lives with hope. Keep allowing us to radiate your beauty. Jesus, for those who have never trusted in Christ, maybe they, maybe they know Christian truths, maybe they know the Bible, maybe they've tried to follow the Ten Commandments, but they've never trusted in Jesus alone as the one who can offer forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. May today be the day where they, where they invite your glory to come and, and pass through the veil the blood of Jesus and experience your life now and forever. And Lord, for all of us who are followers of you, may we continue to press on, knowing that there's some good in this world worth fighting for, and it's the glory of God, God with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.